0: We have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him or unto him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist or cohere or stand together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. You will remember that Paul has been addressing here this subject of the preeminence of Christ, verse 18, latter part, in opposition to a host of errors put forth by certain teachers who were troubling the Colossians with their false doctrine, errors which in the main were devoted to dethroning Christ from his glory. Back in verse 14 of chapter 1, Paul set forth the preeminence of Christ in the work of redemption. Then in verses 15 through 17, Paul was setting forth the preeminence of Christ with regard to the old creation, the creation of the world. First of all, as Christ was unique from the creation, the manifestation of God and all of his attributes, the image of the invisible God, so that to see Christ and know Christ was to see and know God. Also, in relationship with the old creation, he was the firstborn, uh, the sovereign creator of all things physical and spiritual, human and angelic, creating all things in himself, not one who assembled the parts that were uh, like, like someone who purchases a model from the store, but rather the one who brought every element of creation into existence himself by his own power creating exclusively himself with, of course, the rest of the Godhead, and unto himself for his own glory, and not only creating but actively maintaining the fabric of creation by his own power, sustaining all things that he had created, and pre-existing all created things, thereby showing himself to be the eternal God. Because if he created all things that were made, and he... ...was before all things that were made, then he himself was not made, but was uncreated, and therefore was the eternal God. And so Christ was the firstborn with relationship to the old creation, having that position of privilege and preeminence. But then, of course, Christ is set forth as equally preeminent with regard to the new creation. And it was to this that the apostle turned in verse 18... And he is the head of the body, the church. And then last week, we considered several points out of that text. We considered the question, who is this church that is talked about here? And of course, the answer was that it is the ecclesia, the assembly of Jesus Christ, the whole community of the redeemed, bought with his blood that which he loved and gave himself for in order to wash and sanctify and perfect in glory, the partakers of the promise, those baptized by one spirit, drinking into one spirit, the elect, the true Israel of God. That is the church spoken of here. And secondly, we considered that question of why they are called the body. And this, of course, pointed to the unique nature of the church, that it is not a club like the Lions Club or the Masons or something like that, that a person would go and join, but it is a living organism made up of members united together spiritually by the Spirit of God, requiring for its health and growth mutual service, humble acceptance of one another's gifts. Life together in spiritual union, just as the human body, the eye cannot say to the foot it has no need of it, or anything like that. It's all united together, one body with many members in an organic union. Thirdly, we considered the question, what does it mean for Christ to be the head of this body? And that, of course, is his place of preeminence. He is the organic head of the church. He sustains it. He gives life. He nourishes it so that it increases with the increase of God, according to the scriptures. But he's also the ruling head, the lawgiver, the judge, the defender of the church, guiding the body in its motions, teaching it what to believe and how to act, ruling over it with authority in all things. Christ, the head of the body, the place of preeminence. And by this he established Christ's preeminence in the redeemed community, where he was especially dethroned by these troublers of the Colossian church. As to his ruling headship, of course, they had given new law, new ways of worship, resurrected old covenant ordinances as if they had not been fulfilled in Christ. As to his organic headship, they had substituted a whole host of mediators and Jewish ordinances as the way to sustaining the fullness of Christian life. So, on every front, they attacked the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And this was, of course, all in answer and opposition to their foul heresies. Now, at this point, Paul continues his description of Christ's preeminence by turning now to the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Farther showing Christ's preeminence in the new creation by Christ's preeminence in the resurrection as what is called the beginning firstborn from the dead. And with these words, of course, paralleling his privileges and preeminence in the new creation with that that we have already discussed with regard to the old. Pointing to his universal preeminence that in all things he might become preeminent. Who is the beginning, firstborn from the dead? Verse 18, second part. Now there are two things that are said here of Christ, aren't there? And uh, we're going to look initially at the second one first. And so we consider this title given to Christ, that he is the firstborn from the dead. Now you will of course remember that this is not the first time that Christ has been called the firstborn. With regard to his preeminence in the old creation, he was called the firstborn with reference to all creation, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. When we considered that passage, we established at that time that it did not represent Christ as uh, as the first or highest created being, or something like that, but rather as being in a position of privilege and authority. And that, in fact, was what we found, one of the principal ideas in the use of this title, firstborn, just as it's revealed in Psalm 89, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. So this uh, title of firstborn being a title of preeminence, of dignity, of privilege. Uh, As an aside, it did occur to me, of course, something that I did not mention at the time we expounded it, that... uh, Christ's humanity was indeed created, wasn't it? At his incarnation, he was not human from eternity. And as the second Adam, and in fact as the last and perfect Adam, he was preeminent in that respect as well as a kind of firstborn. But now the usage here later in verse 18 is slightly different, because in this case he is meant to be considered as part of a class or group. Uh, the grammar makes that quite clear. It's uh, more specific than that of verse 15. Uh, he was indeed one of the dead, and thereby firstborn from the dead. There's no question about the fact that he was uh, one of the dead. Uh, you can... Uh, all four Gospels universally testify of this fact. Luke 23:46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost or the spirit, which is a euphemism for dying. When a person, uh, physical death, when a person gives up their spirit, the spirit or soul is separated from the body. And this same statement is made in all four gospels, Matthew chapter 27 verse 50, Mark chapter 16, verse 37, and John chapter 19 verse 30, where they additionally spear Jesus in the side. Jesus, according to the universal testimony of the gospel writers, Jesus died <clears throat> by his crucifixion. He gave up the spirit. Uh, it was not only the universal testimony of the Gospel writers, it was as well the understanding of the apostles that Jesus did in fact die on the cross. Bear with me for a moment. This may seem a strange thing to be going to great lengths to prove, but it's important. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 20. You remember this is when Jesus has risen at this point and He meets with the two disciples that are walking in the way. They don't recognize Him. And uh, and they say... Uh, Uh, concerning Jesus of Nazareth they're talking about, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered Him to be condemned to death and have crucified Him. But we trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. See, they didn't have very much faith, didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, about the resurrection, didn't hardly believe in it, and so uh, they were downcast because why? Jesus was dead. Acts chapter 2 also, verses twenty-three, twenty-four, him pe- preaching of Peter the Apostle, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God has raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. They slew him. Uh, Acts three, fifteen, more preaching, and you killed. The Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. You killed the Prince of Life. Acts 5.30 The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Acts 7.52 Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the Just One, of whom you have now been the betrayers, and murderers. Acts chapter 13, verses 29 and 30. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a grave, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 19 19. This one. Uh, not only now this has been the universal testimony of the apostles in their preaching to the Jews thus far now we have the testimony of a heathen uh, a, 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 a heathen letter Festus uh, I'm sorry it's Acts uh, it's not Acts nineteen nineteen. 19 uh, it's it's uh, elsewhere at any rate uh, miss cited the verse, but it's, there's, it's a place in which Festus is writing the letter to send, uh, Paul onward, and it says that, uh, uh, to Felix, he's explaining that, uh, that, uh, Paul was being, uh, assailed by these Jews because of a superstition of theirs that there was this Jesus, which was dead, who Paul said was alive. And that's the substance of Festus' letter. That uh, there is this Jesus who's dead, which Paul says is alive. Even Festus re- says Jesus has died. Uh, it was the understanding of the gospel writers, of the universal understanding of the apostles, and even of the unconverted heathen who uh, so- were somewhat impartial observers of the entire affair carried on between the Jews and Paul. Now, the reason that I mention this is because it was part of the Gnostic heresy, uh, and may possibly have been part of this uh, heresy which was involved with the Colossian church because it was Gnostic in its nature. It was part of the Gnostic heresy to deny that Christ actually died on the cross because one of the elements there was a denial of his humanity. And you see, if you're not human, you can't die. Uh, you, angels don't die. Uh, The souls of men don't die. If you're not human, you can't die. And so by denying his humanity, they denied his death on the cross. And what they said was that it was all a charade that Christ uh, pretended to die on the cross and then later came out of the grave. But there was never any actual death. Now, the denial of this truth quite obviously radically changes or in fact undermines the gospel. As we've seen, if there's no death, Then there's no suffering for sin, no resurrection, bringing justification by grace through faith. None of those things. Instead, of course, we can have another scheme, which is exactly what the Gnostics introduced. Salvation by enlightenment through asceticism or fleshly indulgence. Many mediators and and all of the various things that we see coming into the Colossians, the Colossians are being troubled with. And so, over and over again, in fact, in the Colossian letter... Paul repeatedly emphasizes the fact of Christ's bodily sufferings and death. We've talked about this before in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through His blood. Verse 20, in having made peace through the blood of His cross. Verse 22, in the body of His flesh through death. Over and over, emphasizing that Christ was a real man. He had real humanity, he had flesh and blood, and he died. Christ was, beyond any shadow of a doubt, among the class of the dead after his crucifixion. But Christ is not here called dead, but firstborn from the dead, and this is what we must particularly understand. Uh, Now, again, this place is undoubtedly more literal, perhaps, in its its use of the term firstborn. We'd read it firstborn out of the dead, pointing to the resurrection, which is a kind of birth, a kind of entry into new life. Christ is not being held forth merely as having been resurrected, but as the firstborn of the dead, having this place of preeminence, in the resurrection. And so the question that we have to answer in order to explain the meaning of this passage is <coughs> how is Christ preeminent in the resurrection? How is Christ preem- How is Christ's resurrection different from all other resurrections? Thus causing him to have the preeminence in it, which is the entire point of this passage. Well, there are several points. First of all, Christ was preeminent in his resurrection as the very first to be raised from the dead in a glorified body. Others, you know, were raised from the dead all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament. Uh, just that passage we were reading in, uh, in uh, uh, first, uh, Second Kings today, in which uh, the fellows let, they get attacked, and so they uh, throw that guy's body into the grave of Elisha, and touches his bones, and he's raised from the dead. It's kind of an amazing way to come back to life, uh, providential for him. Uh, of course, the raising of Lazarus, all of those who, when Christ died, that strange, inexplicable passage in the Gospel of Matthew, in which the all of the it says the graves opened up and many of those who had died came out and went around testifying. Uh, many, many people had been raised from the dead prior to Christ being raised from the dead, but but they were not. Uh, They were, we might say, physical resurrections. They were resurrected back to this life. It was not the glorious resurrection, the true resurrection, in which the redeemed, glorified body is united again with the soul forever. Uh, Christ was the first of those resurrections. Uh, Acts uh, 26, uh, verse 23, the preaching of Paul. Paul says... uh, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great. Listen to this. Saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. You see, that Christ should be the first that should rise from the dead. And and interestingly, is it interesting that that Paul says this is not a New Testament doctrine, this is an Old Testament doctrine. This is, all he's saying is nothing other than what Moses and the prophets have said, that Christ should be the first to rise from the dead. So Christ has preeminence as firstborn from the dead, in that he is the first to rise with the glorified resurrection body. Secondly, As he was first in time, so Christ also became the pattern of the glorious resurrection. His body went to the grave mortal, and broken, and humiliated, and weak, and natural, and corruptible. And it came forth transformed as immortal, and glorified, and powerful, and spiritual, and incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15, that we read this morning, versus all the verses of 40 through 50, where he's explaining, uh, so it is, the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. He's the pattern of all the resurrections that would follow. He's the first to be raised with the glorified resurrection body, and he's the pattern of this kind of resurrection, this glorious resurrection. But interestingly, he's more than just the pattern, or the first in time. He is the pledge, or the guarantor, of future resurrections. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Christ is the firstfruits. He's that part of the harvest which is like a down payment, like a pledge, like a guarantee of what's going to come, of what's going to follow. Christ is the pledge that there will be more resurrections, that those who are in Christ will not sleep in the grave forever, but their bodies will be raised, as he says in verse 51, it's a mystery, will not all sleep, will be changed, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, just as has happened with Christ, because in Christ shall all be made alive. He is the first fruits, every man in his own order. Afterward, those that." That Christ said his coming. Not just the pattern, but the pledge, the proof, the guarantee that the dead in Christ will rise. But he is a pledge, fourthly, precisely for the reason that his resurrection is unique. His resurrection is part of that which purchases all of the other resurrections to glory. He's not just a pledge, In the sense that God raised up Christ to prove, to pledge that there will be other resurrections, but Christ's resurrection buys all of the other resurrections. It's part of His covenant headship of the elect. 1 Corinthians 15:16 16-22. If the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. They which also are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, but now is Christ risen from the dead. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It's the same headship as Adam had over the people, over over all of the human race of which he was covenant head, Christ over his elect covenant head, purchasing uh, their resurrections in his resurrections. It is the resurrection, the resurrection by which all other resurrections will come. It says in the scriptures that his resurrection was for our justification. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. So that if Christ isn't raised, there's no pardon of sin. and There's no hope. Your faith is in vain. And this is an absolutely vital distinction, isn't it? Because if I'm raised from the dead, well, thank God. But it doesn't do anything for you. But if Christ is raised from the dead, die for our sins, raised for our justification, then there is eternal life. There's hope. There is promise and proof and pledge of future resurrection. Our faith is not in vain. We're not yet in our sins. Another point, perhaps one of the most important points, uh, with regard to the preeminence of Christ in the resurrection, is that unique to Christ is what we could call the right of resurrection, so you and I, we don't have the the right to be raised from the dead, do we? Just just because that we deserve to be raised from the dead, this doesn't work that way, does it? But it's different with Christ. He had the right of resurrection. To everyone else, it's a grace and a gift. He because he's Prince and Lord of the dead. Remember what he said when he, he was wowing the disciples. They're going by the temple, and he says, I, "Let me tell you something." destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it says that they didn't understand him because he spoke that concerning the resurrection of his body. He spoke that concerning the temple of his body. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What did he say when they came to get him? He said, he says, I, I lay my life down. No man takes it from me. No man takes it from me. That whole interchange there, uh, in which they were all of these, they kept saying, uh, uh, when he would identify himself, I am Jesus, they'd fall down. Uh, they said, and he explained to them that, it, that if the Father hadn't given them power over, they wouldn't have any power. He lays his life down. No man takes it from him. Remember what he says? I am the resurrection and the life. Not I will be resurrected. I am the resurrection and the life. And that powerful verse in Acts 2, 24, Peter explains, You took Jesus, crucified Him, slayed Him, slew Him with wicked hands, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be holden of it. It was not possible that Jesus should be held By death, it was not possible. He had to rise again. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. This was our psalm this morning. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy. With thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you, the patriarch David, he's dead and buried. But he was a prophet, says. He saw that God sworn with an oath that at the fruit of his loins he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. Jesus had the power, the right, of resurrection. Death was just another enemy to be put under his feet, wasn't it? And so perhaps that's the culmination of what we've been saying to be the firstborn from the dead, that title of privilege and preeminence. He was the first to be raised with a glorified body. He was the pattern of all that would follow. He was the pledge of the future resurrections. He purchased those future resurrections, and he had the right and power of resurrection, the power over death. We said here he's also called something else, isn't he? He's called the beginning, the beginning. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. With regard to the new creation, Jesus is the beginning. Calvin explains it well, I think. He says, and I quote, He is the beginning because he is the firstborn from the dead. For in the resurrection there is a restoration of all things, and in this manner the commencement of the second and new creation. For the former had fallen to pieces in the sin of the first man, in the ruin of the first man. As then Christ, in rising again, had made a commencement of the kingdom of God, he is on good grounds called the beginning." End quote. See, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is a kind of pivotal moment in history. It's kind of an inauguration of a new age and a new kingdom. It's a watershed event. Nothing will ever be the same. It's either on one side of it or the other. From the resurrection from the dead proceeds the entire new creation. The spread of the kingdom, the gathering in of the nations, the new covenant. All of these things have their beginning... In Christ's rise from death with power and authority, He's the beginning of the new creation. He's also, not only does he begin all these things time-wise, but he is like the source of a river. You know, every river has its origin, its source. Even the greatest rivers in the world start with a little tiny stream or trickle way up in the mountains somewhere. And then they run downward and they pick up as they go on until they become a mighty rushing Uh, uh, river, powerful, flowing river. It's like that with Christ. If there's no spring, there's no river. It's like that with Christ. He's the beginning of the new creation. He inaugurates it. He's the source from which it all flows to become a mighty raging flood of grace and transformation. Take any blessing, take any grace, any part of the new creation, and just start tracing it backwards trace it up the river, search it out, find out where it goes, and every time you'll come to the same place, higher and higher and higher, always to the highest one of all, to the beginning, to the Lord Jesus Christ. There He is at the top of it all, with that river of living water, going forth out of Him in a torrent, bringing grace and salvation and reconciliation and transformation and glory and eternal life to everyone that drinks of that water, until the whole earth, is renewed in a new creation of grace. Just a couple of words of application. <clears throat> First of all, I'd like to consider for a moment uh, the very intentional parallels here between the old and the new creation. Jesus was the beginning of the old creation, he was before all. All things were created by him, he was the source of life and being. Jesus is also the beginning of the new creation. By His work, this new kingdom was brought into being, and every blessing of grace flows from Him as the head and source. He's the beginning of old and new creation. Jesus was the sustainer and is the sustainer and maintainer of the old creation. It all stands together in Him. Its fabric is maintained in Him. He providentially preserves it. He orders all things, rain, sunshine, life, and death, So it is with the new creation. What more common description of the new creation and the things of the new creation than to say they are in Christ, in Christ. The new creation stands together in him, coheres by him. It is called a body, organic unity. But what brings it? The spirit of the head joining all to all, every member to itself. He's the sustainer of the old creation. He's the sustainer of the new creation. Jesus is the Lord of the old creation. He stands in a relation of authority and privilege as firstborn by virtue of his creating and preserving of all things. He's the prince and chief. But Jesus is the Lord of the new creation, the head of the body, his redeemed congregation, the firstborn from the dead, the prince of the resurrection. Jesus is the end of the old creation. It is all for Him and unto Him, unto His glory. It's moving towards Him and consummation in Him. It's reflective of Him, and it's intended to serve and glorify Him. But so also the new creation. What more obvious than that the new creation is for Him and unto Him and unto His glory? Uh, Ephesians Two, six, and seven, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Ephesians one, ten through twelve. "...that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ." Revelation uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, "...and the four beasts had each of them six wings." And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not night and day, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, that's the (coughs) representatives of the angelic hosts, the four and twenty elders, representatives of the church, redeemed humanity fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying thou art worthy O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created old and new creation in Revelation 5 11 and 12 and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times ten thousand, and thousands and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice "Worthy." Is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing? And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And in these things, of course, the new and old begin to merge together. As, as the old creation is renewed, and, and we'll see that in weeks to come, uh, that this is part of where the Apostle is going with our, with our doctrine here, in the relationship of the old and new creation. All things for him and unto him, whether the old creation, whether the new. A little more directly, uh, applicational, are these couple of words. If Christ, Is Christ the beginning, the source of all grace and blessing? It must then be sought in Him. You see, people look to all sorts of things, don't they? To find peace, love, mercy, grace, and blessing. Oh, some people look to doctors, you know. They put their bodies over their souls. They think if they could just get their health in shape, well, everything would be better. Well, everything isn't better because we carry around with us the body of death and it's always deteriorating, isn't it? Always aging always heading towards the grave. Some people, some people look to psychologists that try to drink from a broken cistern, see if they can find some help from men schooled in the worldly theories of Freud and Jung and Maslow, all blasphemers and perverts. Makes about as much sense as going out to uh, the L.A. prison and seeing Charles Manson, if he could help you with your spiritual problems. Some people, of course, escape by drugs, hard and soft. Maybe they can escape reality by removing their minds from reality. But you know, you always come back. You always come back. You get high, you come down. And then it's just worse. Some people try to uh, immerse themselves in pleasure and entertainment and the lusts of the flesh. But it's the same. Some people will try every kind of religion imaginable except the true religion. They'll, They'll run around... Uh, worship Hindu gods, kiss trees, have fertility rites, uh, go to every church, new new temple every every Sunday or Saturday or Friday or Thursday or Monday or whichever day they're doing it. But what does the Bible say about those? It says those are all idols. And what is an idol? It's something. It can't speak. It can't hear you. It's deaf and dumb and blind. You can pray to it all day long. Nothing will happen. Some people. They look for their source of blessing and grace in the government. Some people in asceticism. Some people in community and family. Oh, if we could just get family values, you know, restored. If we could just have community again and family, then everything would be right in the world. All these things are empty wells, dried up. There's nothing in them. Only in Jesus Christ. You're looking for grace, you're looking for blessing, you're looking for hope, you're looking for a a river of living waters, looking for life abundant only in Jesus Christ. And of course, the chief of all graces is that eternal resurrection. And if we are to be raised, it is only in union with Him and by His power. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me shall never die shall never oh that we would all believe in him